you know, what happens with people is that, so somebody that worries a lot, right? They just drive a thought, whether it's real or imagined, into the ground. The mind can't, doesn't know the difference between a real or an imagined thought. So back to your point about anxiety, it's the story we tell ourselves. It doesn't have to be true. Welcome everybody to the podcast, Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Prebo Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. everybody to this episode of anxiety and families and i have a conversation with laura morton laura is the writer and producer of the upcoming feature documentary called anxious nation about anxiety in teenagers and kids and the epidemic that it has become in families the documentary is coming out in 2021 it was a great conversation Because also, Laura is family. She is my stepsister. My mother married her father when I was 14. She was 13. In the beginning of our conversation that you'll hear, we talk about a teenager moment that we had about music. I want to clarify that it was me playing the soundtrack to the Rocky movie and the theme song, not Laura. So when you hear that, let that sink in. It was me. Let me tell you a little bit more about Laura. She is a New York Times bestselling author. She's a speaker, producer, and entrepreneur. Laura has written over 40 books and a staggering 19 New York Times bestsellers with a wide range of celebrities, including Jennifer Hudson, Justin Bieber, Joan London, Al Roker, Mary Lou Henner, Melissa Etheridge, Katherine Schwarzenegger, Kathy Ireland, Danica Patrick, the Jonas Brothers, just to name a few. She has been involved in the entertainment industry for more than 25 years as a writer, a producer, and entrepreneur, and she is highly skilled in all forms of marketing, social media, and promotion. You can learn more about Laura on links on the show notes and you can go to lauramortonmanagement.com so what i liked about our conversation also was that laura was very authentic and vulnerable in speaking about her own experience with anxiety and with her daughter and how her empathy and understanding led to her creating this documentary i think it will resonate with a lot of people out there And before we get on to the conversation, just want to mention a few housekeeping things. I am excited to announce that shortly in the months of September and October, I am going to be offering guided meditations and visualization audios on my website for purchase on such topics as increasing your emotional intelligence, being the partner that you want to be, letting go of worry, letting go of past relationships, 
being the parent you want to be, several audio meditations recorded by me. So I will tell you when exactly that is out, but go ahead and look for it in the next month. Also want to put out that um, my counseling practice is now online, my counseling and consulting practice. If you're interested in talking about my services, you can contact me at heartsharecounseling.com. And those of you that are listening on Apple Podcast, if you haven't left a review, would love if you go on and leave us a review. You can also follow me on Instagram at Prepo Toplitsky. Okay, folks, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my stepsister, Laura Morton. Anxiety in families. Let's talk about it. All right, here we go. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because... 45 years ago when we were in different bedrooms across the hall living in the same house and you were listening to Rocky, the theme from Rocky um, for about four or five hours a day. I don't think you would have dreamed of actually having this conversation with me. Not a chance. I, you know, uh, I knew that it, that soundtrack inside and out, it wasn't just the theme to Rocky. It was, uh, it was every single song on that soundtrack, but I'll tell you, you had to listen to Barbara Streisand, so I think we're, we're even. Hey, you know what? I still listen to Barbara Streisand, so I, yeah. I'm cool with that. My dad was also a Barbara Streisand lover, so. Yeah, I think it was a, the, a Star is Born album, and the one from <laughs> that era, not the one with Lady Gaga. So, yeah, yeah. Cool. So, yeah no, it's, it's great to be sharing this with you. Yeah, so now we're kind of doing some projects that are a little overlapping. Me as a therapist, I deal with this issue around anxiety in people's lives. But you're doing a project right now with families and and children and teenagers that I'd love for you to give us a background of of how that got started and how you got into it. Sure, sure. So I uh, I am making a film called Anxious Nation, and the idea behind the film is that I'm a parent of an anxious child. I have a 12 year old daughter who uh, has dealt with and suffered from anxiety her entire life. I mean, I saw signs of it as early as you know three years old. And it was something that I really had a hard time understanding. It's just not something that I moved through the world really understanding from, from her point of view. And no matter how empathetic I, I am to my own child, I just didn't know what it was like to walk in her shoes. So, you know, one day I was sitting in my office and I was having one of those days that as a parent, you just feel like you're failing your child in so many ways. You're failing as a parent. And I remember sitting back and thinking, man, if I'm struggling and you know and I have the capacity to to put the tools in the toolbox and the means to get her the help that she needs and you know she's still really really having a hard time if if I'm struggling how are other families getting through this and I really wanted to know what that looked like and I put one line on Facebook like I was just sitting at my desk so I would like put it on social media I put one line on Facebook that said kids in anxiety who's dealing with it and I was sort of surprised because the answers that came in on Facebook, which I call put on a happy Facebook, right? Um, yeah. You know, they were, they were pretty vanilla. I am, we are, my kid is, my niece is. But it was the private messages that came in as a result of that one line that blew. It, it just blew my mind. I got messages from people who I actually am really good friends with, Prepo 
that I had no idea what they've been struggling with, what they've been going through. I had friends share with me, they had children who had attempted suicide. I had friends share with me that they have children who suffer from severe OCD, you know, but really open stories. As soon as I put that on social media, it's as if I gave a window of opportunity to talk about it and not feel shame. And what I realized was that if you allow people a forum where they feel safe, as you well know, they want to talk and they're willing to talk. And I realized like this was the next story I had to tell, you know, I'm a storyteller by trade. And I realized that this was the next story that I had to tell. If I could somehow bring anxiety out of the dark and into the light, if I could take that shroud of shame and secrecy off of it and normalize it because it's totally normal, then it would be the greatest gift that I could give. And so that was the, the idea behind making this film. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. Cause as you're saying, normalize it, is anxiety uh, a disorder or is it just a human emotion that it just gets exacerbated because we have a, a certain ideal how life is supposed to be? Like you said, the, the, the smile of the Facebook and social media, which is also creating, of course, a lot of anxiety for how life should be. And that's creating, you know, I've read some statistic. There's, there's something like, I think it was 38% of teenage girls have anxiety disorder, 26% teenage boys, social media hasn't been that beneficial in that round around helping people do that. So the expectation of living a certain life creates a lot of this anxiety too, doesn't it? It does. You know, it's an interesting dialogue when you, you know, when you talk about social media, because I am a big believer that social media is a symptom and not a cause of anxiety. And here's where I go with that. I really think that the root cause of anxiety, and we're talking a lot about this and really diving into this pretty deeply in, in the film, is that you've got a generation of really anxious parents who never learned how to cope with their own anxiety. And in the process of not learning how to deal with their own anxiety, what they see is that they've passed on certain traits to their children. So some of it is, in fact, genetic, and some of it is you know, situational. And so what happens is these parents don't want their kids feeling as bad as they do, right? So what do we do? We protect our children. We don't want them to feel. We don't want them to fail. We don't want them to hurt. So we take away what is generally a good life experience, a, a teachable moment. We take that away from them. But even more so, we place our own expectations on them. And in doing that, what we do is we create a situation where these children can't live up to those expectations or they aren't, we're not allowing them to be who they are as human beings, right? Our kids come into this world joyful and pure. We pretty much screw that up. They don't. You know, at some point you go off into the world and you make your own decisions, but as children, as adults, it's, you know, and as parents, it's our job to, to give them whatever tools we want to give them, positive or negative. And so I think that the, the first piece of that is, honoring the role that you play as a parent, right? And I think that that is, you know, where a lot of that stems from. And, and, to, and that's why I believe anxiety has to be looked at and treated systemically. So you can't just treat the kid. And yeah, because, you know, the kid can go and have a great therapy session and then the kid comes home and mom is neurotic and dad is in denial and, you know, whatever that family setup is, it doesn't really matter. Things aren't going to change if the overall picture doesn't change. 
And so I think there's a lot to unpack there. I, I think that social media brings up things like FOMO, which is really real, right? That fear of missing out. What's interesting is during you know, the pandemic, during lockdown, a lot of the traditional triggers were eliminated for a lot of kids. And what we saw was the antithesis of what we expected. We saw kids getting calmer. Were their parents increasing anxiety? And the kids yeah, I do calmer? think that for the first time, these kids also saw their parents freaking out in ways that they had never experienced before. I have a girl in my film who is 11 years old and severe OCD. And what was making her especially anxious was her parents' anxiety. She said that her father, one day, there was a Newsweek magazine on the coffee table and she, and on it, it, you know, the headline was anxiety crisis, you know, was something really alarming. And her father saw her, saw the magazine, flipped the magazine over. So she didn't have to see the headline. And that poked at her anxiety in a whole different way than if he didn't call attention to it, right? But their heightened level of anxiety is what the struggle, you know, was for this child. And, you know, whereas my daughter, who, who has always lived in a heightened state of anxiety, has actually been incredibly calm during uh, lockdown and, and quarantine, mostly because I'm, I'm home. And as a single mom who travels a lot, I, you know, I can't think of any time in my daughter's life where she's had me at home for five straight months. It's crazy. I mean, you know, and, but what a difference I see. And, you know, you, you get reminders all the time about what's really important. And you talk about silver linings that come out of challenging circumstances. And I think we're seeing a lot of that through what we're all in, you know, going through right now and enduring. And, and you know, I, I've had conversations with my daughter about resilience that I likely would never have had in the same way. Right. Yeah. Because that part of addressing that and even modeling, like you're saying, the parents really need to model that aspect of how to deal with their own anxiety, because that's what kids pick up on. They pick up on the modeling. They don't pick up on the words of what they're told to do. And if adults are able to model that in a different way, the acceptance of being comfortable with the uncomfortable, when adults are able to do that, when we are able to accept situations that we can't control and to not worry about constantly how things are going to go in the future then kids can also have that modeling to be able to experiment in the family system, as you're saying, which is so important. Very important. And I think this has been a, a learning curve for everybody because, you know, none of us have been through this. You know, parents who are facing, you know, the notion of, of kids who are home from school and will be, you know, learning remotely. And, you know, parents look forward to that, that break for eight hours a day and they go off to work and they do what they need to do and the family comes back together. You know, something else when we talk about anxiety and kind of steering it a little bit away from that notion of, of social media or, or our devices, what we've really lost is connection. And, you know, we were a very disconnected society prior, obviously, to COVID uh, and remain so even though we have so many things that help us feel connected. And that disconnection really goes back to the days of cavemen, right? When, when, you know, the village, right? When people gathered in the center of the village and it was all for one and one for all, we don't live that way anymore. You know, people just, they don't know their neighbors. There's no camaraderie. It is 
a very isolating existence. And that social isolation is a big piece of it. It's creating uh, a lot of problems. What we're seeing, you know, you want to talk about statistics, we're seeing these spikes in suicide rates between the ages of 18 and 21. And what we're seeing is that these kids are going off to college with no coping skills and no resilience and lots and lots of encouragement to talk about their problems and nowhere to go. So they go to their college uh, health centers asking for help. And there's one therapist for, you know, 1,500 students a week showing up. And these kids are, you know, the average wait time to get a therapy appointment on college, on a college campus is three to 12 weeks. There's, that's, that system is broken. And, you know, and that's a problem even in the, you know, again, I look at this as a problem with the institutions in general, because the parents point the finger to the schools and say, you know, you should be figuring this out. And the schools are like, we're not equipped to figure this out. This is your kid. You figure it out. But there's so much cross-pointing going on that these kids are being failed. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I love that analogy that you said around like the caveman, because that's what the village did. They, at nighttime, they gathered around a fire. They didn't go driving to soccer practice and then this practice and that practice because that brings so much anxiety for kids, all the things and activities. Because one part of having anxiety is having too many choices. Whatever it is, if there's you know five pairs of jeans, uh, blue jeans to choose from, that creates anxiety as opposed to you got two or you got one. You know, so choices that we think is so much better for us, the more choices, especially at a younger age, it creates anxiety. It really does. It really does. And I think, you know, there is um, that notion of keeping up with the Joneses, right? And, and yet we don't even know who the Joneses are. And what's really interesting, and it, this might feel like it's a little off topic, but it really isn't. And that is, is that the fastest growing religion in the United States right now is no religion. No religion, yeah. And, you know, what that points toward, though, is a falling away from connection, because that is where people generally for you know, centuries and thousands of years found their connection. And that, that falling away from spirituality or, or faith in general, it has had an impact. And what you're seeing that in this younger generation, because they don't feel like they belong and there is no sense of that and the the impact is exponential from that right and that feeling of connection is also a new model from the addiction model where it used to be there still is belief system around being a disease model but a lot of studies are coming out showing that the addiction is based on lack of connection when people have connection in their lives they don't need to go towards that that substance to move away in distraction because they have that connection we interviewed uh, Dr. Dan Siegel in the film, and he tells a wonderful story about being in Africa. And he goes and he's meeting with the tribal chief of a, a group that he was working with. And through an interpreter, you know, he was noticing how happy these people were. And they had nothing. They were living in, you know, grass huts and mud huts, and they had no floors, no running water, you know, no, it was... And he was, he was really amazed at how happy they were. And when he asked through the interpreter what makes his people so happy, the answer was connection. Yeah. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. That's what we all thrive for. And we're trying to get it in so many different ways that's actually dysfunctional. It is. And, you know, he, and it's funny that the 
tribal chief turned the question around on, on Dr. Siegel and said, what makes your people so unhappy? Right. And so, and he's like, where do you want the list? I, you know, and, but it's, it's really interesting because that is a case of less is more. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then there's another aspect piggyback on that of how we have run the run with the ball around worry. You know, I love the Dalai Lama quote where he says, if there's something that you can do about a situation, then there's no need to worry. If there's nothing that you can do about a situation, so there's no need to worry. So basically he's saying there is no need to worry, but yet we always in situations or, or as, as people, we've conditioned ourselves to futurize as animals to protect ourselves, to worry of the worst case scenarios so that we could protect ourselves. And it's gotten out of hand, the aspect of worry. So do you see that with what you're doing right now with the documentary around what worry is doing with anxiety? You know, I think worry goes hand in hand with anxiety. I think worry and anxiety are like first cousins, right? I, I don't know that one can exist without the other. What I see, and it's a theme that I'm seeing. So what we did with, with the film is we sent cameras out these really cool 4K cameras out to the kids because this generation is so used to selfies and filming themselves that we thought we would get much more authentic footage from them by sending out the cameras than we would by ever going into their house and trying to you know sit down and do an interview with them. And, and it just, that, that wasn't as natural and as authentic to us. And, you know, lucky for us, we had those cameras out uh, in early March. So that was a, a lucky break. One of the themes that we've gotten back from almost every single one of my kids, and my kids range from 11 to 27 is my oldest kid, but you wouldn't know it. She's a professional skateboarder. Uh, but uh, my, you know, the age range is like 22, 23 at the top. Worry is so prevalent that they, but it's about things that aren't real. Mm. So their anxiety is actually triggered by thoughts that aren't real. I'll give you a great example. It's an extreme example, but it's a great example. This little girl I was telling you about that has OCD, one of her obsessive thoughts is suicide. She is not suicidal, but she has obsessive suicidal thought. And she worries about whether or not she really wants to hurt herself or, you know, her worry just, and it just spins and spins and spins. But it could be something as simple as, did I say something that upset you? Or, you know, how is my performance? Like it just spins and that's her OCD, right? But it's all rooted in worry. And, you know, when I think about worry, I think about, I wrote a book maybe 10 years ago already with a guy by the name of Tom Ferry. And Tom is a business coach. He's a, one of the leading thought leaders in, in business. And Here's how Tom got me to write the book. He sat down, he tried to get me to write that book for maybe a year and I just wasn't interested. It just didn't, at the time, it just wasn't something that I was really interested in. And, you know, one night I met him for dinner in New York and he said, did I ever tell you about the four addictions? And I said, and I was literally about to, you know, take a drink from a martini and I went, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh. And he said, what do you, you know, what do you think they are? And I was like, mm, I don't know, alcohol, sex, I don't, you know, and he's like, no, because those are byproducts. He said, the four addictions that impact everyone's life are the opinions of others, worry, drama. The addiction to being right. Well, that is not <laughs> your wrong. Um, hang on, you just wait. The addiction to worry, the addiction to drama, 
the addiction to the opinions of others, and the addiction to living in the past. And he said, those are the four addictions that all other addictions are offshoots of. Wow. And I started to think about it because I thought that was so powerful, right? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I immediately thought, man, well, I'm a warrior. So yeah, I've got that one checked. I don't live in the past. So I'm not too worried about that one. I do think that I worry about it then maybe more so than today, the opinions of others and drama, not a fan, but most people have one or two or all of those. Did he say what the, what a addiction itself is, is, you know, one definition of addiction is something that you just can't stop doing. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that that's a piece of it for him, right? Because it's habitual. So as a business coach, his whole goal is to, is to you know, break habits that are holding you back. Mm -hmm. So I think from that point of view, that's where he was, he was talking. But you know what happens with people is that, so somebody that worries a lot, right? They just drive a thought, whether it's real or imagined, into the ground. The mind can't, doesn't know the difference between a real or an imagined thought. So back to your point about anxiety, it's the story we tell ourselves doesn't have to be true. And so, I mean, I'm definitely somebody that can understand that whole notion of worrying about something that I can't do anything about and worrying about something that I can do something about. Because a lot of people have anxiety over anxiety. Absolutely. The, the, the feeling that I am, th this situation is going to create anxiety. So automatically they're having anxiety about a potential anxiety. And as a therapist, I like to also work somatically with people when they're feeling anxiety, because the feeling of that overwhelm or the, or the, the can't breathe that chest, if people allow themselves to kind of like, you know, go up the, the roller coaster where they usually stop and freak out, ride that through then they realize that that anxiety can pass, that they can move through the anxiety if they actually go towards it more, even in a hyperventilating type stage. A hundred percent. And we, again, we talk a lot about that in the film is, you know, there is this notion, anxiety is not curable and you don't want it to be curable. There are, there are parts of anxiety that are actually very useful and in the right time, in the right place. So name, name one. Can you name a good anxiety? What's good anxiety? Yeah. I mean, if you were being, you know, if you were walking down an, an alley, I, I refuse to use the example that everybody uses about being chased by a lion because it makes me crazy. Because when's that going to happen, right? <laughs> but if you were walking down a dark alley and somebody was walking behind you and you sense you have that feeling that you're in danger, that's anxiety. It's the exact same feeling. Right. That's that fight or flight response. That's right. I'm also wondering about with your profession, does the anxiety of a deadline or motivation, is that a good anxiety for you? I think that's a very personality driven thing. Okay. So there are people who went to school and never wrote their papers until the night before they were due. Mm -hmm. And then there were people that worked on it for months. You know, I think that's a very personality driven thing. But for me, I have lived on deadlines my entire career. So I, I've, I've learned how to manage that as well. I, I often say I've never really missed a, a flight and I really haven't missed a deadline. So I'm, I'm somebody who I'm performance driven. And so, you know, that's for me, but not everybody's like that. And, you know, some people can't live by deadline. Some people, in fact, feel confined by a deadline. Is that a good anxiety for you? I don't even think of it as anxiety. To me, okay. it's just part of the work. It's a good question. Okay. It's a really good question. I, but I don't really think of it as anxiety. Like, as you know, I just finished writing a book in like 35 days, which is 
you know, crazy. It's Herculean. And, but you know, you, you know what you're taking on and you, you know what you have to do. And it's like an emergency room physician who doesn't know what they're walking into every day, but they just do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And so that's how I feel about it. That's how I feel, you know, about writing in general these days. Can I ask you something to that? Because I think sure. that's so so interesting because I, I have a lot of clients that are physicians also. And what I find that that compartmentalization that they can do about just focusing on what needs to do in that kind of situation is so beneficial for that situation. However, some of the offshoot that can be detrimental is then they squash the feelings around it. Then they're not able to process the feelings that they had around the situation or in an appropriate situation to feel the feelings of anxiety, empathy, worry, sadness. So they're not doing that in their personal life. Is anything that come up around that with people or yourself? Uh, so what a great question that is. Um, I'll tell you what, I just had a situation yesterday that I had been struggling with. It was a business decision that I had to make. And what I've learned over the years is when I struggle over the decision, the answer is no. It's, it's really an easy thing to, to understand, but I still struggle with it. And I had a, a situation yesterday that I was really struggling with what I wanted to do because I really, I, I really was at a genuine fork of the road. I could have gone left or I could have gone right. And either way, it would have been okay. What I tuned into was how I was feeling. My heart was racing. My stomach was in knots. And that was not how I wanted to feel. And I think what you have to do is take a beat and really tune into, you know, one of my mantras for many years has been what price peace. Hmm. My decisions are really based around that repo. And I had, and you know, and I had somebody remind me of that yesterday because I, I taught him that lesson. And he said, you know, I'm shocked that you're even struggling with this because what price peace. And once he said it to me, it, there was this giant aha, you know, it was almost like he was just holding up the mirror and saying, Are you, like, here you go. So you've done this for me many times in the past. What are you going to do? And I realized I wasn't at peace and I needed to be at peace with the decision. And as soon as I realized that it was such an easy choice. That's a somatic feeling, isn't it? It's yeah. in the body, the feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is, but that's tuning in, right? So right. that's, that is exactly, that's becoming attuned to yourself. I know attunement is about tuning into others, right? But I think that I really feel like you can, you, you know, you could argue the, the science of this with me, but I think you, you must self attune. I think if you really are self-aware, you must self attune. And once you get the hang of that, because we have a tendency to push it away, like you said. Like we have a tendency to get cerebral. Yes, right. And you know to be logical, and I can logic my way in and out of anything, but I can't change how I feel here. That's always exactly when I say here, I mean my heart, my gut, and my gut has never led me astray. My head has. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think I told this on another podcast. I can't remember, but I don't know if you know this story. When I, when I decided to quit the corporate world, um, it came through me so viscerally. I was uh, putting together a big presentation. I had a $50 million account that I was in charge of and got to the office early. We had a glass conference room. I had my Georgia Armani suit on and I'm getting it ready, the table. And all of a sudden I saw this spider in this room. And when I looked at the spider, 
I started viscerally feeling anxiety, like the spider was panicking and I was panicking inside. And I had this myopic view of my mission was to get this spider out. I'm chasing the spider out on all my fours. I'm sweating. And there was one moment that I looked in the corner of my eye and I saw about 15 people gathering in the glass looking at me like, what the fuck is this guy doing, right? <laughs> and I finally got the spider in my hands, opened up the door, let him outside, and this visceral feeling of peace and contentment came to me. And I was like, ah, that's me. I need to get the fuck out. And that was such a visceral knowing that that's what I would need to do. I needed freedom. And it took me, it took me a little bit to follow that. I don't know, a few months to like the, the cerebral part that came in. But from that moment, that was one of my most profound moments of feeling to trust that in different progressions in my life and the future of that. So yeah. I think you're right on about that aspect of we know it. We know that. You, you, and you know, yeah, you can't unknow it once you know it. And it has really led me. And what a great story, by the way. Mm. I mean, to to have had that experience and then do something about it. Yeah. And then do something about it because that's where most people separate. They have that experience and they don't do anything about it. Especially where you know you don't know where you're going to land, because that's the part when the, the intuition and that knowing doesn't say, "Oh, your road is going to be so smooth and it's all painted out for you." No, it's like here's a choice, but we don't know what the future holds for you. You just got to trust. Well, you do, and I think what's so great about those experiences is that you also don't understand the moment. You can't understand it in the moment. Yeah, you know, so you have to. That trust is everything. And, you know, creating, you know, trust within yourself is sometimes very difficult because we second guess. Is this the right thing? Am I making the right choice? Is this the right guy? Is this the right job? Is this, you know, everything is, is an opportunity, right? Every obstacle is an opportunity. So I feel like it is sometimes you just have to be like, this sounds a little like, you know, woo, but, but it's true. Sometimes you just really have to be. I struggle with it. You know, I struggle with it. But when I, when I come around to it, I'm as firm. My feet are planted so firmly on the ground when I get to that place. This is the kind of things that we need to teach our children, right? These are the kind of things about trusting themselves and their own knowing. And I think what happens with, the, with a lot of parents that are anxious, we don't actually trust our children's path. You know, as a father, the one thing that I have really cultivated within myself is, Come on, people, trust your child's path and trust your path as a parent. I don't know what that is, but just trust it. Trust his decisions because he'll never get off the path. His path is his. How could he get off of it if it just does whatever his path does? So entrusting that, I think, is such a, it's such a process that we need to cultivate as parents to give that to our children. Well, you're so right on about that. I mean, we we talk with Shavali, you know, Dr. Shafali Sabari in our film, and her whole platform is conscious parenting, and that is the core of what you just described: is allowing our children to be who they are, not who we want them to be, and and you know, consciously allowing them to grow and and be on their own path. So I think you're you're spot on and how lucky Xander, you know, is to have you and Rainbow for for parents. Mm, thank you. Yeah. You know that part that you saying 
you said earlier about some parents don't want their children to make the mistakes that they did. To me, that's like ridiculous. How could they make the same mistakes when they have this whole different life? And also whatever mistakes they're going to make, let them, let them make the mistake to be able to experience all of the aspects of what that means to them and not, not coddle them to make sure that they are making what I think is the right choice. And that's the part like you, you were just discussing right now about trusting that path and trusting them. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're all individual souls. So it's, yeah, you're, you're spot on on that. And, and I think, you know, it is, it is learning to understand what it is you're feeling. It, it's like another language. Right. So that means I, I know that I was able to be a parent when I slowed my ass down. My life wasn't mm-hmm. slow before, before I had a child. Mm-hmm. When I was able to slow myself down, I needed to check out from society in some ways to really find an inner sense of myself. When I was able to do that, that's made it easier to trust it. So one aspect is in people's busy life, we have to slow the freak down to be able to hear ourselves and our voices and trust whatever that knowing is, how, how we hear it when, when we're just creating this busyness all around us. Totally, totally. And, you know, and we live in a busy world. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, and there's a lot of noise coming at us and, you know, a lot of things that are just going to heighten those feelings of doubt. And we live in a, in a world right now where everything is uncertain. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with things that, you know, and if you would have told me in my lifetime that we'd be dealing with, I would have said, you're out of your mind. You know, it's bananas. Like it's, it is, it's bananas. And, and if we're having a hard time with it, you bet we're passing that on. You know, I had Sevi wake up. I, I hope it's okay that I share this. Sevi, you know, woke up maybe a month ago. And she told me that she was ashamed to be an American. And my heart just hurt, you know, because we grew up in an era where, you know, we were so patriotic and so about, you know, the privilege of living in this country. And I, you know, I thought about it and I just thought, how, how are we, how have we let our, our kids down? You know, your son is, is living ab- abroad, but, you know, he's got American ties. And, you know, I wonder what that's like for him right now you know and i think it's i think there's a lot to put on our kids shoulders and it's this isn't a political conversation it's it's part of that anxiety that that they're going into this next decade carrying that's right yeah and what we're passing on with just even a global situation of climate challenges economic challenges with them we i wasn't thinking about that when i was young Mm-hmm. Uh, not at all. I was, I was thinking about my my next date. You know, the next baseball game I was going to. I wasn't thinking about none of my girlfriends. You didn't date any of my friends. <laughs> wait, wait, Jane. Yeah, I'm yeah, not going to yeah. use any last names. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jane, how you doing? Out there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I no. You're you're right about that. I mean, I when we moved to California last year, Sevi didn't really care about knowing where the school was, she wanted to know how their security was. It's a lot. Yeah, that's, an, that's another thing that, you know, the aspect of kids' safeties in schools. Oh my God, I just couldn't imagine. Yeah, yeah I mean, we had fire drills, tornado drills. Like that's yeah. what we were, you know, get, to, get under the desk, put yes. your hands over, you know. Right. That's not, you know, now they're hiding in closets, you know, with active shooter drills. No kid should have to go to school worrying about an active shooter 
or an actual shooting drill. It shouldn't be part of their day. So with, with what you're filming and that, that you're documenting, is there an aspect of helping the children and their families to be able to transform that? Like what form is, is that guidance coming in? So the, the film really poses three questions. Are we more anxious than we've ever been? And the answer is absolutely yes. And, and the answer would have been yes a year ago, just as it will be yes a year from now. Um, why? What, you know, what are the causes? Because I think parents, uh, you know, the New York Times does a very good job of pointing the finger at things like social media and, and our devices. But again, I think it's so much bigger than that. And um, it's, it's a tough topic to dive deep on, but I think we're doing a, a really good job at, at talking about the bigger issues that I think are, are more universal. And then finally, what can I do about it? And so we are looking at solutions to harness anxious energy and use it for good. You know, unfortunately, in a film, you've got 90 plus minutes, you know, a documentary doesn't really long run much longer than that, maybe 120. And there's a limit in terms of what we can do. But if we do it right and we do it well, I, you know, I hope that we can do more. Mm. And when's that going to be complete? Anxious Nations, when that, when is the completion? And We're hoping by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, my goal is to make the very best film that we can make. And we are taking our time and doing it right. It's a very, very large topic to unpack. Yeah. So as we have moved Anx- through it. Anxious hmm? Nation 2, part two, right? <laughs> part, part two. Anxious <laughs> Nation, the musical. Um, <laughs> we're going to get Lin-Manuel. Um, but uh, I feel like, you know, as we allow the stories to organically unfold, we, you know, the film gets exponentially better. So we have, you know, we have some really interesting stories that have emerged and it's funny, you know, we know that we have some A stories and then, you know, some supporting stories, but um, it's an embarrassment of riches, which is a happy thing to say and a sad thing to say because there's so much good material. Mm-hmm. What are you getting out of it? What, what have you learned or experienced from this process? Oh, what a good question. Hey, how many, how many, how many good questions has I hit, have I hit this time? I, thank you. I, I like that. I think there's been... Yeah, like quite a few. <laughs> yeah. You should think about doing this, you know, more I, often. I should be a therapist. We have yeah, maybe. Yeah. So for me, I think, you know, Prepo is somebody who is a storyteller and, you know, somebody who, whose work I think has had an impact over the years, some of it more than others, right? I think this is a little bit different for me because it's so personal. All the work that I've done in the past, I've been detached from because it's not my story. This is my story and it's my story and it's every parent's story because I don't really know a parent who isn't dealing with an anxious child. So Sevi has a camera also. Like she's, is mm-hmm. she part of it? Yeah. Right. Sevi has a camera. I upload her footage. I don't really look at it. And there have mm. been some mean mommy videos Wow. and it's okay. Cause it's part of the story. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, the other day there was a helicopter flying over the house, maybe about seven, seven thirty at night. And it triggered something in her. And they were making an announcement. They were looking for a 17-year-old autistic boy who was missing. But what she heard was bad man on the loose. Mm. And she fell apart. And one of the things that I have really been intent on is showing what anxiety looks like in real time. And so we were able to capture that. And it was rough. you know. And I'm torn as a mom and as a filmmaker 
on what's the right thing to do. But I would not ask any of the families in my film to do something that I wouldn't do myself. Wow. Mm. Yeah. That's courageous. Very courageous. Thank you. I think my daughter is very courageous for doing this. Mm. And I think all the kids in my film are very courageous. I was on the phone earlier today with a young man who is out everywhere in his life, but to his father Mm. as a gay man. And he is trying to figure out how to do that. And we're watching it unfold on, on camera. It's a lot of anxiety there. And this is just another level of sharing people's personal stories that you, mm-hmm. you've done in different mediums. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. You know, it's, it's amazing, though, because, you know, you and I talk about this. And what we really haven't talked about is, you know, other cultures and, you know, where anxiety and mental health is not talked about at all, particularly in the brown and black communities across the country. Uh, there's, there just aren't the resources. It's not part of their cultural dynamic. And, you know, there's been a much greater um, movement toward having those communities be more open to it. It's something that has to change because there is a real stigma around, around mental health in those communities. And it's something that absolutely has to change because it's not like anxiety doesn't exist. That's right. Yeah. And unfortunately, we even criminalize it. So many people mm-hmm. that are institutionalized in prisons are really need to be in healthy mental institutions, not criminalized. And, and even you talk about, you know, a global standpoint, that's not really getting a lot of play. Denmark for many years, my wife is Danish, so I know this, but Denmark for many years was voted the happiest country, you know, but the happy scale is very different. You know, it's around economics, social net and so forth. They have a high rate of antidepressants and depression in the, in their country. So what is happy in you know, that, that, that sense? So the marginal aspect to even like to get to happiness and the goal of happiness, as opposed to experience in the moment instead of getting somewhere to be happy to be able to open up to the moment of being in our lives and like you say get getting that sense of peace i think it's prevalent throughout the world for sure i have a book coming out uh in early 2021 called happy is the new healthy and you should have dr nihal on on your show i think you guys would have a great conversation and um it is because happiness is a is something that is missing for a lot of people and i don't even think that people understand what what happiness is right and you know how how they define happiness is usually around stuff mm-hmm. so i think uh you know what's so great about the work that i do and even you know you asked about the film what, what have i gotten out of it it's like going to harvard for every project that i work on right i get to educate myself on things that I otherwise wouldn't know very much about. So the amount of information that I get to cherry pick life lessons, you know, for even if I'm just writing somebody's memoir, I get to cherry pick the best of the best. And then I don't have to learn those lessons by going through it. Right. Yeah. You know, I just get to take it with me. <laughs> right. That's where we're similar. Cause as a yeah. therapist, I get to, I get to look at somebody's life and, and also who I don't want to have that experience, but thank you for that learning of that experience also, so that I don't have to also do it. And perhaps I can just be someone to, to hold your story so that I could take a piece of it, but it is your story. It's not my story. Yeah. I've never really gotten confused about, you know, whose story it is. Um, 
that, although I am super fun at cocktail parties when we start talking about other people's stories. Um, but I, uh, you know, I think it's really important that you, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to get to do the, the kind of work that you can benefit from and that you in the process are able to add value back into the world. I don't know what's better than that. Yeah, that's true. And thank you for doing this work. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. I do. It's fun. Yeah. And it's just, it's just wonderful to have this conversation again. Like, like I said earlier, like 40 some odd years ago, the work that, that we're doing in the world to be able to wrap around it, wrap about it. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. Well, if I, I, I could have written a rap for you. Like, you know. <laughs> yo, yo, yo. Oh, don't get me started because I can do the other song that you're well known for. What, what is that? Rapper's Delight. Oh, baby, you got that right. I still know it. I still know it. I'd be lying on it. Hip hop. Hip hop. Hip hop. Don't stop. Rock to the That's right. Wow. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you remembered that. Oh, oh yeah. I it in my brain forever. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. So I know my listeners want to hear more stories about me, but I think well, it's about time that we wrap up right now to dinner, that you <laughs> have some good stories. So cool. Well, thank you again for, for making the time and for sharing your, your, not only your project, but some of your personal experience with this and, and being courageous enough to be vulnerable and transparent about what's going on too with it. My, my pleasure. It would a privilege to, to speak with you and, and share these stories. And you know, I'm really proud of you for the work that you're doing. I really mm. am. Keep it up. Yes, I will. I will. You too. All righty. Thanks, Thanks so much. Bye. All righty. Relationships. Let's talk about it is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting PC of Asheville, North Carolina. For more on licensed counselor Prepo Teplitsky, visit heartsharecounseling.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling and psychotherapy, medical advice, diagnosis or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice. Thank you.